Good morning, good morning, good morning, and good morning. Glad to see all of you this morning. We are deeply ensconced in Matthew 24. Don't start by turning to Matthew 24, though. Instead, turn to the book of Deuteronomy. The last couple of weeks, we've been spending time in the book of Daniel in order to demonstrate 
that the things that Jesus said in Matthew 24 were not things that he was revealing for the first time. He was actually reciting things that can already be found in the Old Testament from the prophets. I think far too often we think of Moses as a leader in Israel and as the lawgiver, and we forget that he was also a prophet. And we're going to look at a prophecy this morning that comes directly from Moses. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4. And really, the prophecy I am interested in starts at verse 25, but I want to start reading before that because very similar to how the other prophets work in the Old Testament, in chapter 4 of Deuteronomy, Moses begins reciting God's history with Israel. And this is before they have even entered the promised land. And yet Moses is going to tell them that when they enter the promised land, that God is indeed going to deal with them and his dealings with them is going to include them rebelling and turning away from his law and that he is going to bring them a time of trouble and a time of punishment. And the end result of that is going to be that they are going to return to God. Exactly the same thing that all the prophets of Israel say. You've heard me use this phrase over and over. I keep saying all the prophets speak with one voice. And what I mean by that is they all tell the same story the same way. And it starts all the way back with Moses having received the law at Mount Sinai after 40 years of marching through the wilderness. As Moses has been told that he's not going to enter the promised land. He's not going to lead the children of Israel into Canaan. That's a job that's going to fall to Joshua, who providentially, his name just happens to be the exact same name that is later assigned to the Son of God. That's not a coincidence. This is the plan and the purpose of God to teach particular things. Moses, because he is the very embodiment of the law, cannot lead the children of Israel into the promises of God. It has to be Jesus who does that, and Joshua, who has the very same name, becomes a type of Christ in leading the children of Israel into the promises of God. And so Moses is recounting all of that in chapter 4, and he is recounting their history, and suddenly he leaps forward and tells them about things that are going to happen, quote, in the latter days. And he says the same thing that we've been seeing time and time again that I've been stressing for the last several weeks, which is that the time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again, the time that Daniel predicted where Jesus picked up the same language to describe it, the time of Jacob's trouble as we saw last week, though he'll be delivered out of it, everyone whose name is written in the book, that time of trouble has a reason, it has a purpose. And its purpose is the refining and the correction of Israel so they return to their God. And that's what all the prophets say it's for. Hence, we have to say, that's what it's for. It's not primarily about the church. Ever since Moses said this to the children of Israel... They have always known that there was a time coming when God was going to punish and correct them, and the end result would be their return 
to God. Daniel said it later. Jeremiah said it later. Ezekiel describes it later. Jesus talked about it and cast it off into the future. The book of Revelation picks it up and describes it. Along the way, you get Jude in the New Testament describing it. You get Joel in the Old Testament describing this terrible time of trouble. And so all the prophets are reciting and reflecting what Moses first laid down. Before the children of Israel even walked into the promised land, God told them what their history and future was. Interesting, huh? Okay, so let's read. I'm very, very tempted to just start at the top of the chapter for context. But I want you to understand what God is doing here. He is reciting their history. Chapter 4, verse 1. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I am teaching you to perform in order that you may live and go in and take possession of the land which the Lord your God, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word which I am commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. Your eyes have seen what the Lord has done in the case of Baal Peor and all the men who followed Baal Peor. The Lord your God has destroyed them from among you. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are alive today, every one of you. See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do this in the land where you were entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who will hear all the statutes and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. And what great nation is there that has a God so near to it, as is the Lord our God whenever we call on him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am setting before you today? Only give heed to yourself and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things which your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. And make them known to your sons and to your grandsons. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, when the Lord said to me, Assemble the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children." And you came near, and you stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire, and the very heart of the heavens There was darkness and cloud and thick gloom, and then the Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire, and you heard the sounds of his voice, but you saw no form, only a voice. So he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments, that you might perform them in the land where you are going over to possess it. So watch yourselves carefully, since you did not see any form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb from the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly and make a graven image for yourselves in the form of any figure, 
the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the sky, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water below on the earth. And beware lest you lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the host of heaven and you be drawn away and you worship them and you serve them those which the Lord your God has allotted to the people under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace from Egypt to be a people for his own possession as today. Now the Lord was angry with me on your account, and he swore that I should not cross the Jordan and that I should not enter the good land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. For I shall die in this land. I shall not cross the Jordan. But you shall cross and take possession of this good land. So watch yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he has made with you. And make for yourselves a graven image in the form of anything against which the Lord your God has commanded you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When you become the father of children and children's children and have remained long in the land and act corruptly and make an idol in the form of anything and do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you shall surely perish quickly from the land where you were going over the Jordan to possess it. You shall not live long on it, but you shall be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you shall be left few in number among the nations, where the Lord shall drive you. And there, in those scattered nations, there you will serve God's, the work of man's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear, nor eat, nor smell. But from there, those scattered lands, you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search for him with all your heart and all your soul. Verse 30, And when you are in distress, and all these things have come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God, And listen to his voice. For the Lord your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail you, nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant with your fathers, which he has sworn to them. Indeed, ask now concerning the former days, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and inquire from one end of the heavens to the other, Has anything been done like this great thing, or has anything ever been heard like it? Okay, so this is all part of God demonstrating how unique Israel is among all the people groups on the earth. And not only does Moses recite their history, but he tells them as they're going into the promised land, now don't make any idols and keep this law. And you have these tablets with these Ten Commandments, which establish a covenant between God and you. And then he says, now when you go into the land, 
and time passes and you become fathers and fathers of children and children's children. As generations passed, God already knows what you're going to do. You're going to break his law. You're going to rebel against him and you're going to go worship idols. You're going to do all that. And so what is he going to do? He's going to scatter you out of the land. If any of this sounds familiar, it's exactly the kind of stuff that we're reading on Wednesday nights out of the book of Hosea, now out of Amos, as God is getting ready to drive Israel out of their land and into the Assyrian captivity. It shouldn't have been any surprise to them all the way back here at Moses before they even walked into the land. Before they set foot on Canaan the first time, God already told them, when you get there, I'm going to scatter you. And when they are scattered and when they are in these lands, away from their property, away from their promised land, when they're out scattered among the Gentiles, God is going to draw them again back to himself. They're going to search after him with all their heart. And Moses sums it up by saying, has anybody ever seen anything like this? That's how unique you are, Israel. Now, when you put... Moses' prediction here, which he says is for the latter days. This is a latter days prediction. When you put this together with everything else we've seen from the prophets, when you put this together with the repetition over and over of the same information, you're in the land, you're going to be sent out of the land, you're going to be scattered, you're going to be among the Gentiles, but God is going to draw you, God is going to restore you, God is going to bring you back to your land. Jesus walking around talking about the kingdom and his apostles saying to him, are you going to restore the kingdom at this time? The whole Bible just keeps telling the same story over and over and over again. You would think at some point we'd get it. We'd understand it and say, okay, this really is what the Bible actually teaches. I told Tom this morning that I listened to an online preacher a young fellow that I've known for years. And I listened to him take a verse from the Old Testament that said Israel right in it. And he, without flinching and without evidence, without any textual support or anything even vaguely resembling explanation from the text, he just leapt to, well, that's the church. Israel's the church. And the promise that was made in that text, he applied to 21st century Christians, particularly the people sitting in the room with him. And yet the Bible just couldn't be clearer. So by the time you get to Matthew 24 and Jesus shows up and starts saying the same kind of stuff and makes reference to a time of trouble such as never was or ever would be again, this is not new to them. This is something that they've known all the way back to Moses. And have known from their prophets ever since that the time of trouble is coming. They also know, by the way, what its purpose is. And its purpose is for the restoration of Israel. To draw them back to their God. Go to Matthew 24. You understand all that? Yep. Okay. Because, as I've said for the last couple of weeks, people have a tendency to get to Matthew 24... And some little gear turns in their head and they say, well, Matthew, that's New Testament. And Old Testament, you know, that's about Israel. And New Testament, that's about me. That's about the church in some way. It's definitely definitely about Gentiles. And next thing you know, 
they're leaping to conclusions that completely ignore the entire corpus of Old Testament teaching leading up to this. And Matthew is a remarkably Jewish gospel. We're in Matthew 24. I think we got as far as verse 22 last week or so. So let's back up just a little bit to verse 15 for context. Jesus gives the residents of Judah a particular warning. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to get things out that are in his house. And let him who is in the field not turn back to go get his cloak. But woe to those that are with child and to those who nurse babies in those days. But pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world, until now, nor ever shall. He's speaking about the same thing Moses spoke about, that in the latter days there would be this trouble, distress. You'll be in those nations, and when you're in distress, you'll come seek the Lord, and you'll be restored to your God. Same thing. As we saw last week, he's saying the same thing Daniel said. He's saying the same thing Jeremiah said. Jeremiah particularly called it the time of Jacob's trouble. Daniel specifically said it applied to Daniel's people, Daniel's city. So there's going to be this time of trouble, this time of terrible stuff. What's the result going to be? Israel's going to run. Those who are in Judea are going to flee because they're going to see this thing, this abomination that makes desolate, this thing that is going to so desolate the temple. This thing that is going to be such an affront to the worship of God is going to be set up in the temple. And we looked at evidence the last couple of weeks that it is probably going to be some kind of image, some kind of idol, some kind of statue. But as we saw from the book of Revelation, the false prophet is going to cause this statue to speak. And the false prophet is going to do great wonders, great works, even call down fire from the sky. So that people would naturally be, if they're, if they're not completely familiar with the word of God, if they don't know what the Bible says prophetically, if they're not expecting these things, then they will most naturally be drawn away by the power of these signs, these miracles, the image, the speaking. And they are going to do the one thing that God keeps saying over and over and over again, don't do. Notice what Moses said to the children of Israel. Don't make idols. Don't worship idols. Don't make an image of anything that you would bow yourself down in front of it and worship it. So what's the ultimate abomination of desolation? That there's going to be an idol in the temple that is dedicated to the worship of God. And it's going to be the idol of a man. And people are going to be forced to worship it. So, again, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Ultimately, the worship of satanic idols is going to desolate the temple. So when that happens, he says you need to flee because then is going to be this terrible time of trouble, this terrible time of wrath and vengeance that has a purpose. Its purpose is to restore Israel and bring them back to God And so verse 22 tells us that unless those days had been cut short, 
No life would have been saved. No flesh would survive this time of trouble. That's how bad it is. Now, this is one of the reasons that I keep saying, I don't believe this has happened yet. 70 AD, which is the date that uh, many folks point to and say, well, that's it. That's the culmination. That's that time of trouble such as never was. The whole world was not in any danger of all flesh being eradicated. But here the description is, if it weren't for God's intervention in cutting this period of time short, nobody would survive. That's how bad it's going to be. Now, this should also make you think, I don't want to be here. (laughs) You shouldn't want to be here. It's a terrible thing. It's a terrible time. I am also convinced that the church won't be here. And unless those days had been cut short, no flesh would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days shall be cut short. Now, in a few verses, we're going to see another reference to the elect that Jesus is going to send an angel who is going to gather the elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to another. That's verse 31. And so we have to talk a little bit this morning about who these elect are. When Jesus used the word elect, eklektos here in the Greek, it's the same word that sometimes is translated chosen, sometime elect. It means specifically that, to be specifically selected out, to be chosen by God for a specific relationship unlike the relationship that the rest of the world has. So God chooses particular people and elects particular people. Now, we being reformed people, we're very aware of, very conscious of the concept of election, especially because even in our tulip acrostic, you only get two letters in before you end up at unconditional election. And so we're very conscious of election, but what happens is, again, those gears start turning in our head where every time we see the word elect, we think, well, that's me. Elect, that's us, that's the church. Because we do have that tendency to read the Bible through 21st century Gentile eyes. We say, well, elect, election, we're elect. Paul talks about election, Ephesians 1. Election, that's all about the church. Well, I agree with you. When Paul talks about it in Ephesians 1, he's talking about the election of the church. Yes, absolutely. But Jesus is not right here. And I will prove it to you. Because the same way that there is this whole Old Testament compendium of knowledge that you have to take into account when you get to Matthew 24, there is all this language of election in the Old Testament. And whenever you see chosen and elect in the Old Testament, guess who it refers to? It's Israel. It's always Israel. It's all Israel. Now, by the time Jesus is speaking in Matthew 24, there is not yet any revelation of the idea that there's going to be a mixture of Jews and Gentiles who are going to compose the body of Christ known as the church. That's that's an unknown element at this point in history. And Jesus is speaking to a Jewish audience, and he makes a reference to the elect. So what are they thinking? Who are they thinking? What do they think he's talking about? Of course, Israel, the elect, the only people on the planet who have ever been called the elect. 
Remember what we just read from Moses saying, has any other nation ever had these advantages? Has any other nation had something like this? Who has ever even heard of something like this, that God would make a covenant with a distinct and a unique people like this? All right, we've got a bunch of verses, so I hope you're willing to read. Tom, we're going to start with you. First Chronicles 16, 12 and 13. You want to read? Sure. John 2, Isaiah 41, 8. Jamie, Psalm 105, verse 6. Tyler, Psalm 135, verse 4. I need somebody else. Micah, Isaiah 44, verse 1. Devante, Isaiah 45, verse 4. I heard you. <laughs> Isaiah 48, verse 12. One more. Todd, you want to read something? Isaiah 65, verse 9. Okay, the point and the purpose of all of these verses is that they all refer to Israel as the chosen, as the elect. That's really the only point for all these verses. Just because I want to give you enough evidence that you recognize that the prophets have already been using this language to refer to national Israel. So when Jesus shows up and speaks prophetically to Israel and uses the same language that the prophets have already used, that word already has a meaning. Make sense? Makes sense. First Chronicles 16, verses 12 and 13, Tom. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered, O offspring of Israel, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. That's pretty direct. That's pretty direct. <laughs> yeah, pretty obvious. Uh, Isaiah 41, 8. But thou, Israel, art my servant, Jacob, who I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. Very good. Chosen, elect, exact same word. Uh, notice, by the way, how well John 2 stood up, turned, and made sure that you could all hear him. Let this be a lesson to the rest of you. <laughs> what did I give you? Psalm 105, verse 6. When you read it, did it make sense? I'm starting to see a pattern here. You're starting to see a pattern. Good. Stand up. Turn to the crowd. Let them see your lovely face as you speak. See if this sounds familiar. Remember his marvelous works that he hath done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. O ye seed of Abraham, his servant, ye children of Jacob, his chosen. A pattern is definitely developing. So we're, we're getting a multiplicity of Old Testament authors here who are all saying the same thing. When they refer to national Israel, they call Israel specifically God's chosen, God's elect. Psalm 135.4. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel has, as his own possession. Isaiah 44.1. But now listen, O Jacob, my servant in Israel, whom I have chosen... Now listen what? What does he tell him to do? Read verse 2. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Thus says the Lord, who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you to not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jerusalem, whom I have chosen. Jerusalem I've chosen. Israel I've chosen. Jacob, mine elect. Are you, are you feeling this yet? Okay. Who did I give Isaiah 45 for? Devante. For Jacob, my servant, yeah, my servant's sake, and Israel, my elect, I have even called you by your name. This is when he's talking to Cyrus. This is when God is predicting that Cyrus is going to be used in order to send the Israelites back to 
rebuild the uh, temple. And it starts right out with, for Israel's sake, for Jacob, my chosen, mine elect. Uh, did I give somebody Isaiah 65.9? Did I do that? I will bring forth descendants from Jacob and from Judah and heir of my mountains. My elect shall inherit it and my servant shall dwell there. Okay, so my elect is going to inherit the mountain of God, Jerusalem. And finally over here, Mag, Isaiah 48, 12, right? Right. Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel, my call. I am he. I am the first. I am also the last. Okay, so is there any question about what the term elect means in the Old Testament? No. You have a multiplicity of authors who all refer to national Israel as God's chosen, as God's elect. And you have the history of God's interaction and dealings with Israel that prove that Israel has been chosen unlike any other nation on the planet, exactly the way Moses described them. So that being the case, when Jesus in Matthew 24 is speaking to a Jewish audience and makes reference to the elect, who is he talking about? Israel. It has to be Israel. Contextually and historically and grammatically, it has to be Israel. So I say, don't insert the church here. Because there's no indication that Jesus intended that the church be the direct object of this term. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But now it's really interesting. Now that we know who the elect are, it's for the sake of Israel that those days are going to be cut short. No flesh would survive. These days are going to be so bad. But because God has an everlasting covenant with Israel, again, we just read it out of Deuteronomy. Moses said it, that God is going to remember the covenant he said, when you're in this trial, when you're in distress, God is going to remember the covenant that he made with your fathers. And because God remembers that, he's going to cut this time of trouble short so that he can begin the process of reuniting them, bringing them back to their land and establishing the kingdom. That is the consistent testimony of the whole Bible. Got it? Yes, sir. Okay. Verse 23. So then... If anyone says to you, behold, here is Christ, or there he is, don't believe them. He's already started with this. If you look back to the beginning of the chapter, chapter 24, verse 1, when Jesus came out of the temple and was going away with his disciples, they began to point out the temple buildings to him. And he answered and said, do you not see these things? Truly, I say to you, not one stone here shall be left upon another which shall not be torn down. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they will mislead many. So this is apparently a very big thing, a very big object, because he's returned to this theme again. And said, if someone says to you, hey, Christ is back, and he's over there, don't believe them. Certainly over the course of the last 2,000 years, there have been plenty of people who have claimed to be Christ. Some are still on the planet right now. 
There are cultic groups on the planet right now where the leader of the group claims to be the reincarnation of Christ. But Jesus himself was very clear to say, don't believe that. Why? Because his return is going to be so incredible, so magnificent, so unavoidable that there's not going to be any question. If somebody says, hey, uh, Jesus is back and he's in Cleveland, don't get in the car and drive to Cleveland. He's not there. Save yourself the trouble and the gas. If someone claims to know, hey, we found Jesus, really where? Oh, he was the Bahuala. Come join us. Don't do it. Because he did not come back in the person of the Bahuala. That didn't happen. If somebody says, hey, we found Jesus, where is he? He's in South America and he's got a huge following down there. Don't go. It's not him. When he returns, in fact, because he is the king of glory and because he has control of the entire universe, as we continue on, we're going to read the signs of his coming, the sign of his return. He uses the specific word that there is going to be the sign of the Son of Man in the heavens. And just so no one misses it, first he's going to turn off all the stars. And then the sun and the moon aren't going to give their light. And just about the time everybody's going, have you seen the sky? (laughs) Everything looks a little scary up there. At that moment, the sign of the Son of Man is going to appear in the heavens, and he describes it, he said, it's going to be like the lightning that flashes from the east to the west, the idea being that wherever you are under the sky, when the lightning flashes, you see it because it covers the skyline. He says, that's what my return is going to be like. This is why when you get to the book of Revelation, you read that the residents of the planet, both the great and small, the free and the bond, everybody, male, female, everybody, because they're still on the planet when he comes back, it says that they run for the rocks and the caves and the dens of the earth, and they say, fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. You don't want to be here when that happens. So he says, If anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe. Verse 24, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if it were possible, even the elect. Mm -hmm. So even Israel, in their anticipation, in their looking for the return of Christ, are going to fall for the idea that Christ has returned, the Messiah has come back, especially when they see, this is why the name Antichrist, it means substitute Christ, in the place of Christ. By the way, I guess it's worth pointing out that the Pope this very peculiar and liberal pope who's walking around the planet right now goes by the nickname Vicar of Christ. Have you heard that word, vicar, before? It means substitute, in the place of. He claims that when he speaks, the language is ex cathedra, that when he speaks to the church in an infallible way, that he is the voice of Christ speaking to the church. Even though Jesus said, Don't believe that. 
The Pope is not just claiming to be a religious leader and a shepherd of a church. He claims to be and has claimed it for hundreds and hundreds of years. The Pope claims to be the vicar, the substitute of Christ. He is not. So Christ is very clear that there are going to be false Christs, antichrist, and that there are going to be false prophets who will arise and do great signs and wonders. This is why last week and the week before we looked at some of these signs and wonders. If there is a statue in the temple, the abomination that makes desolate, if there is a statue of this world leader and then it speaks and it speaks by the power of a false prophet, and the false prophet has the ability to call fire down from the sky, and then they say, take a mark? Mm. How many people are going to take that mark? Oh, an extra inducement, by the way. You can't buy, sell, or trade without the mark. The money that you've got in the bank right now, which isn't money to begin with, the money you've got in the bank right now that is all just electronic digits, they can just turn a switch. You can't get your money. Have you ever gone up to the auto teller and found out it was closed? I have. Gone to get some cash out of the auto teller. Little sign, out of order, on a Saturday. Oh, is that frustrating? No! Technology foiled me. No. Look how easy it is to keep you from your money. So think about the inducement. Okay, so there's a, there's a world leader on the planet who politically is doing things that no man has ever done since perhaps Alexander the Great. He's demonically inspired, so he has an authority and a power unlike we've ever really seen. I mean, the way that people look at political leaders right now, and we impose all our hopes and our dreams on these political leaders. Jamie and I had dinner together the other night. We were talking about this, that Obama, when he ran for office was such a clean slate that people were able to just take whatever they wanted him to be and impose it on him and then vote for him with the belief and the hope that he would become what they wanted and needed him to be. And I think a lot of the same things happening right now with Donald Trump. People are just saying, oh, he's the guy. He's going to fix it. He's going to be okay. Okay, so this is the kind of emotional investment that we have in politicians. Imagine a world leader who actually manages to bring peace to the Middle East. Imagine a world leader who is able to bridge the divide between the Muslims and the Jews in the Middle East, who includes a, a pact, a peace pact that's going to allow them to rebuild their temple. Can you see how the political world is going to line up behind him and say, who is like the beast? They won't call him the beast. But who's like this? Who could possibly do this? He's amazing. And then a false prophet, a religious leader, comes alongside him. Now think again of how easily people are deceived by religious leaders. Just think Joel Osteen. There, that was easy. He's got one of the largest, quote-unquote, evangelical churches in the country. And he is speaking lies. I saw an interview with him just the other day where he was asked about, because, of course, if you're a Christian at all, you're going to be asked about homosexuality. You know, what do you think? And he gave a real mushy, wishy-washy answer where he basically said, well, God approves of everybody. <laughs> oh, well, thanks. That's nice. Of course, he never talks about sin. He never talks about judgment. 
and yet people flock to him because they love wishy-washy, mushy, make-me-feel-good religious leaders. So now take this political figure, take this religious leader, combine them, and then the religious leader starts doing miracles, which Jesus said were going to be great signs and wonders. If there's a guy doing great signs and wonders on the planet, you don't think he can get a following? Think about all the people who show up just in case Benny Hinn is right. <laughs> right? There's no evidence that anybody actually gets healed, but just in case he can still fill an auditorium. What if the guy coming to your town is doing signs and wonders that include calling down fire from heaven? I mean, that's Elijah-level stuff. You don't think people are going to flock to them? And then, in that combination of the two of them, they say, now all you got to do is take a mark. And, oh, yeah, if you don't take the mark, you can't buy, sell, or trade. Oh, and if you don't take the mark, we cut your head off. Line starts here. <laughs> People be lining up. And they'll be able to justify it with no problem. Because to begin with, their religious education will have been so bad, as it is everywhere, that they won't recognize what's going on. Secondarily, Paul, writing to the Thessalonians, says that God is going to give them a strong delusion so that they will believe the lie and be damned. Mm. Wow. So God is so certain this is going to happen that he and his divine sovereignty is going to make sure that it plays out that way. And these people are going to be so deluded and so biblically ignorant and so amazed that they're going to line up and they're going to take that mark or die. And Jesus said that was all going to happen. And people will do it anyway. How do I know this? Well, because we began by reading from Deuteronomy and Moses told Israel what they were going to do. Did they do it? Yeah, they did exactly. Wouldn't you think that if Moses, your prophet, said, now look, uh, when you go into the land, you're going to be tempted to do that whole idol thing that I told you not to do, that God was very specific about not doing? So when you get there, don't do it. Moses didn't talk that way. He said, you've been told not to do it, and when you get there, you're going to do it. Why? So that God can bring about his divine plan of judgment for the restoration of Israel so that he can bring about this time that he has foreordained for the latter days so that he can establish the kingdom as a matter of grace and not a matter of law. And ultimately, Israel is going to be restored and Christ is going to rule on the planet because that is everything God has foreordained since before the foundation of the world. And the fact that it's written down doesn't stop people from doing it. Jesus told the Pharisees that they were going to kill him. Did it stop them? Wouldn't you think that would be enough inducement for them to go, hey, wait, he knows. <laughs> He's already up on it. Don't, hey, back off. And they all said collectively, the one thing we cannot do is kill him on Passover. So what day did he die? Passover. Passover. Yes, of course he did. Why? Because it was foreordained. It was predicted. It had to happen. So here Jesus has already told us in advance what's coming in the future. 
It is going to happen in the future. Everything he has said is perfectly in line and in league with everything that the Old Testament prophets have already said. And even the fact that he has told the world in advance in his word what's going to happen, they're going to do it anyway. Let's talk about the depth of sin for a moment. Because even telling sinners how they're going to rebel against God isn't enough to keep them from doing it. They're going to do it anyway. False Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if it were possible, even the elect. Verse 25, behold, I've told you in advance. So Jesus says, I, I told you, I've, I've told you all this. In fact, in fact, you, Israel, when you see the abomination of desolation, some part of you, some remnant of you is going to wise up enough to know and you're going to run. Others aren't. Others aren't going to listen. Others are going to be killed. It's going to be a time of trouble that is horrendous. But you'll survive it because God has made a promise to your forefathers. And because the promise that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was unconditional, and because the promise of a kingdom given to Christ, the son of David, is an unconditional promise, these things have to happen. So God is going to bring about this horrible time of trouble, and then he's going to deliver them through it and out of it. No flesh would survive if God did not intervene and cut it short. And Jesus said, behold, I told you all this in advance. Why? Number one, so that he could demonstrate that he is in charge of human history. And number two, so that they were forewarned to flee. If, therefore, they say to you, behold, he is in the wilderness, don't go forth. Or if they say, behold, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. And then he says something really interesting and cryptic. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. What does that mean? What is that about? Well, again, this phrase is not unique to Jesus. This idea, this concept already has an Old Testament foundation. So he is saying something to them that they already get. They already know what it means. Tom, you want to read again? Sure. Look up Job 39.30 for us. Everybody go to Ezekiel. Let's start there. Everybody go to Ezekiel 39. Let's do that. Ezekiel 39. Again, a prophecy of this time of trouble that is coming on Israel. This is all part of that Gog and Magog and Rosh and Meshach and Tubal and all that kind of stuff that we don't have time to get into right now. But after it's over, after this war, after this conflagration, well, here's what the end result of it is going to be. 39.1, and you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, 
Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, princes of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal, and I will turn you around, I will drive you on, I will take you up from the remotest parts of the north, and I will bring you against the mountains of Israel, and I will strike your bow from your left hand, and I will dash down your arrows from your right hand, and you shall fall on the mountains of Israel, and all your troops, and all your peoples that are with you, and I shall give you as food for every kind of predatory bird and beast of the field." And you will fall on the open field, for it is I who have spoken it, declares the Lord God. And I shall send fire upon Magog and those who inhabit the coastlines in safety, and they will know that I am the Lord, and my holy name I shall make known in the midst of my people Israel. And I shall not let my holy name be profaned anymore, and the nations will know that I am the Lord, the Holy One of Israel." Behold, it is coming, and it shall be done. That is the day of which I have spoken. Then those who inhabit the cities of Israel will go and make fires with the weapons and burn them, both shield and buckler, bows and arrows, war clubs and spears. And for seven years they will make fires from them, and they will not take the wood from the field or gather firewood from the forest, for they will make fire from the weapons." And they will take the spoil of those who despoiled them, and they will seize the plunder of those who plundered them, declares the Lord God. And it will come about on that day that I shall give Gog a burial ground there in Israel, a valley of those who passed by east of the sea, and it will block off the passerby. So they will bury Gog there with his multitude, and they will call it the valley of Haman Gog. For seven months, the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land, and all the people of the land will bury them. And it will be to their renown on the day in which I glorify myself, declares the Lord. And they will set apart men who will constantly pass through the land, burying those who were passing through, even those left on the surface of the ground, in order to cleanse it. At the end of seven months, they will also make a search. And as those who pass through the land pass through and anyone sees a man's bone, then he will set up a marker by it until the barriers have buried it in the valley of Haman Gog. And even the name of the city shall be Hamona, and they will cleanse the land. As for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to every kind of bird and every kind of beast of the field and say this, Assemble and come together from every side to my sacrifice, which I am going to sacrifice for you as a great sacrifice on the mountain of Israel, that you may eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of mighty men, and you shall drink the blood of princes of the earth, as though it were rams or lambs or goats or bulls, or all of them the fatlings of Bashan. So you will eat the fat until you are glutted and drink blood until you are drunk from my sacrifice, which I have sacrificed for you. And you will be glutted at my table with horses and charioteers, with mighty men and all the men of war, declares the Lord God. And I shall set my glory among the nations and all the nations will see my judgment, which I have executed and my hand which I have laid on them, and the house of Israel will know that I am the Lord their God from that day onward. 
And the nations will know that the house of Israel went into exile for their iniquity because they acted treacherously against me and I hid my face from them. So I gave them into the hand of their adversaries and they all fell by the sword according to their uncleanness and according to their transgressions that I dealt with them and I hid my face from them. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, now I shall restore the fortunes of Jacob and I will have mercy on the whole house of Israel and I shall be be jealous for my holy name, and they shall forget their disgrace and all their treachery, which they have perpetrated against me when they live securely on their own land, and no one will make them afraid. I'm just saying the same thing over and over. The interesting detail that's added here is that God says when he destroys the nations around Israel that attack Israel, the Gentile nations, God is going to fight for them and destroy all of them. Remember this whole no flesh would, would survive if God didn't intervene. He's going to destroy them with such a great destruction that then the land is going to have to be cleansed and purified. So the first thing he's going to do is bring the birds from the air and the wild animals to a feast, to a sacrifice that God says he sacrificed for the birds. And then they're going to clean all these corpses of the blood and the flesh down to the bone, and then Israel will be seven months cleaning up and burying the bones in the particular valley that God has set aside for that job. Has that ever happened? Do you find that in history anywhere? No. No. What is the purpose of it happening? So that God can reestablish Israel and they will know their God and he'll set them up in perpetuity and safety in their own land. Are you getting a feel for this? How many times do I have to say? The Bible only teaches one thing over and over and over again. I gave you Job 39, verse 30, which says, His young ones suck up blood, and where the slain are, there is he. Go back a couple verses so we know who he is. Uh, starting in 27. Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? On the rock he dwells and makes his home, and on the rocky crag a stronghold. From there he spies out the prey, his eyes behold it from far away, his young ones suck up blood, and where the slain are, there is he. So even in the book of Job, which is arguably the oldest book in the Old Testament, the description that God gives of the eagle, he made the eagle a particular way as a carrion bird, his purpose is to suck up blood, and wherever the corpse is, there he is. Now, some of your translations will argue about whether that's eagle, whether that's vulture. What we know for sure is it's a carrion bird, a bird that lives off the flesh of other things. So God designed and created carrion birds for that purpose. And wherever the corpse is, that's where they're at. And then Ezekiel tells us about this time of terrible bloodshed that God says is a feast for the birds, for the carrion birds, where they'll be glutted on flesh and drunk on blood. And then Jesus comes along and says, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will be gathered. He's saying the same thing Job said, but he's also putting it in the context now of this time of trouble, such as never was or ever would be again. This time of trouble where no flesh would survive unless God intervened. And what's the end result of it? that there's going to be a feast for the carrion birds. By the way, that also comes up in the book of Revelation. Turn to Revelation 19. I promise you we're nearly done. Sort of, kind of. <laughs> Revelation 19. Verse 11. John writing, first person. And I saw heaven opened. 
And behold, a white horse. He who sat upon it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. Who is that? Jesus. It's Jesus. Who else can be called righteous and true? His eyes are a flame of fire. Upon his head there are many diadems. And he has a name written upon himself which no one knows except himself. By the way, I'm just so fascinated by that phrase. Mm-hmm. I tried to read right past it. But you'll notice here's another example where God is not under any compunction to tell us everything. We keep thinking we're so smart, you know. <laughs> oh, man, I really got a hold of this. We don't even know what name he's using when he comes back. Anyway, he's clothed with a robe that is dipped in blood. And his name shall be called the word of God. Somebody look up Isaiah 63.3 real quick. Just do this for me. Isaiah 63.3. I have trodden the winepress alone. From the people no one was with me. I have trodden them in my anger. trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments. I have stained all my robes. Do you hear that language? Isaiah predicts that a time is coming when the Messiah will be like that. In fact, chapter 63, verse 1 says, Who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Basra? This one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I who speak in righteousness. I am mighty to save. Why? Now the questioner asks, why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads the wine press? If you got out there and stomped the wine press, you'd get the the blood of the grapes on you. You'd get the, the coloring from the grapes. And so his apparel is all red. And the questioner asks, why is that? And his explanation is, I have trodden the wine trough alone. And from the peoples, there was no man with me. And I also trod them in my anger, and I trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my raiment. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. And I looked, and there was no one to help, and I was astonished, and there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me, and my wrath upheld me and I trod down the peoples in my anger and I made them drunk in my wrath and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth that's Jesus by the way meek and mild loving Jesus sweet Jesus walking around with a baby lamb on his shoulder all the time so he comes back described that way in the book of Revelation now we know why his robe is dipped in blood it's because he has trodden out the winepress of God's wrath And he has the blood of the people he has crushed. Rough, huh? I'm back in Revelation, chapter 19, verse 13. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in the heaven are clothed in fine linen, white and clean, and they're following him on white horses. That is, I do believe, the church. Verse 15. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. 
And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midheaven, Come and assemble yourself to the great supper of God. Sound familiar? Now we know when this is going to happen. This is an end time prophecy. This is a latter day prophecy. This is Christ coming back in vengeance against his enemies. Come assemble for the great supper of God in order that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. What's going to happen? We already know because we've already read it from Ezekiel. We know what's going to happen. He's going to gather all the armies and they're going to gather to the place that we know as the Armageddon, the Valley of Megiddo, the Megiddo Plain. We just know it as the Armageddon. And he's going to come back and not just wipe out the armies, but it says that in that valley, the blood is going to flow to the bridles of the horses. And it's going to be such a wipeout that there's going to be birds called from the sky to come and feast, exactly the way Ezekiel said, to feast on the flesh and drink the blood until they're drunk on the blood. And then seven months of cleaning up the bones. That's how bad this time of trouble is. Worse than anything that ever was or ever will be again. And Christ is right at the center of it, meeting out the judgment of God. Back to Matthew 24. Now, next week, we will get into this phrase, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will be gathered. In Matthew, it comes right on the heels of the same way that the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. And what will that be like? Like everything we just read. Because he combined it with wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will be gathered. When he comes back, he's coming back in judgment. And when he comes back, he has a purpose. He's bringing about this time of judgment against Israel for the purpose of reestablishing them, for the purpose of keeping the unconditional covenants that God made to the forefathers of Israel, to establish the kingdom that Christ himself is going to sit on David's throne and rule them with a rod of iron. And all of that is yet to come. That is all still coming. But it all has to do with Israel. That is the thread through the entire thing. And I don't see church in there anywhere. Turn to Luke chapter 17. Because Luke also cites that particular quote. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. We'll pick up here and look at it next week. Starting in verse 31, Jesus says, On that day, let no one who is on a housetop or whose goods are in the house go down to take any of it away. That all sounds familiar. Likewise, let not one who is in the field turn back. We remember all that. He adds parenthetically, remember Lot's wife. When they were told, when Lot and his family were told to flee, get out, just go, get out of Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot's wife hesitated and looked back, became a pillar of salt. And so he said, when I say to you, go, I'm not even joking about this, go, get out right now and remember Lot's wife, do what I said. 
Whoever seeks to keep his life is going to lose it. Whoever loses his life shall preserve it. And I tell you, on that night there will be two men in one bed. One will be taken and the other is going to be left. And there will be two women grinding in the same place and one will be taken and the other will be left. Two men will be in the field and one will be taken and the other will be left. And answering, they said to him, where? Good question. Okay, so there's two in a bed and one of them is taken. Where? Where are they taken? And he answered, where the body is, there will the vultures be gathered. So there's even a time coming when there's going to be a separation of people, one taken, the other left, one taken, the other left. And when they said, where? He said, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures are going to be gathered. They're drafted into that war. They're drafted into that war. That's exactly right. We'll start there next week. You will also notice, by the way, that uh, as we've been working through Matthew 24, that the phrase, the day of the Lord, has not popped up. But it did pop up in my uh, text on my phone because Michael wanted to know, when do we get to the day of the Lord? And I bring that up to say, not to pick on Micah, though I'm not above picking on Micah. I, I bring that up to say, rather providentially, this Wednesday night, we will do our fifth lesson on the book of Amos. And Amos is going to describe the day of the Lord in chapter 5 of the book of Amos. So I didn't plan it this way, but providentially, our Wednesday night and Sunday morning messages are converging because, you know, providence works and God knows what he's doing. So Wednesday night, we're going to start talking about the day of the Lord, and we will talk about it in uh, probably next week, but in the Sundays to come, because it is part and parcel of this whole eschatological end time subject, but you'll notice that it doesn't show up right here in Matthew 24 directly. Instead, we just read about this time of trouble such as never was, ever would be again. So that's all forthcoming. All right? Okay, now I know that was heavy, and I know it. Uh, I know it's bleak. I know it's dark stuff. But when I tell people, you need Jesus, I'm not joking around. You need Jesus. That is your only hope, because that's how the world ends. And there's no elected official, there's no king, there's no Congress, there's no parliament that can avoid that. That's coming. Remember what we read from Daniel. That last stone kingdom crushes all the other kingdoms. And Jesus himself described himself as that stone and said that anyone who falls on the rock is going to be broken but anyone that the rock falls on becomes dust. I mean, he is the one who is ultimately going to establish his rulership here on planet Earth. But in the process of so doing, and this is what is missing from far too much of modern eschatology, that in so doing, he is going to establish the covenants, the unconditional covenants that God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that is really the core and center of what this is all about. And if you do an eschatology that misses that, then you have a truncated and incorrect eschatology. Okay? Yes, sir. Okie dokie. Any, I, I shudder to ask. Any questions? I'm just thinking what the population of the earth is going to look like 
Yeah, it's going to be kind of a do-over, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, sir. Uh, can, you, can you clarify um, the Jewish believers, Jewish Christians? <laughs> yep. Will they go through this tribulation period, or are they raptured out with the church? Uh, Jewish believers before the time of trouble, such as never was, before the tribulation period begins, I have to say they're part of the church because the church initially is Jewish. The first church is Jewish. So if I were to say that now that the Gentiles are here, that eliminates their participation in the church, that's the very essence of church Israel replacement and everything else. So, so I would say any Jew that is a believer in Christ is a part of the body of Christ and will be taken out before that. The same way that in Romans 9, 10, and 11, Paul is real clear to talk about the remnant and then all Israel. And the remnant is believing. He, he identifies himself when he says, has God abandoned Israel who he foreloved? He says, no, because look at me. I'm a Jew. So he uses himself as an example that God has not abandoned Israel. But then at the end of chapter 11, after he says, that after the, the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then all Israel will be saved. He then describes who he's talking about when he says all Israel. And he says, as touching the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the forefathers' sake. By the way, there's another place in the New Testament where Israel is called the elect. Just let I point that out. So... Even Paul makes the distinction between believing Israelites, believing Jews, who he calls the remnant and who definitely are the church, and then the all Israel, which is the scattered Israel, which is the non-believing Israel that God has to bring back. That's how I understand it. Evidently, according to Zechariah, the people who, the families who meet together and cry, they are the ones... They recognized Jesus and his coming, but they weren't, hadn't been raptured out, evidently they had not right. believed in it. Right, right, exactly. Yes, ma'am? I feel dumb, but I don't understand this uh, paragraph in Luke 17.30, what it means. It's like uh, we shouldn't regret, you know, you're looking back, you're looking to stay on earth. I don't know. The context is the same as in Matthew 24 when Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation, flee out of Judea. So that's a very specific instruction for people who are living in Judea. When the temple has been rebuilt, which, by the way, think contextually, historically, if Antichrist makes a seven-year pact that includes the rebuilding of the temple, you're going to see a real influx of Jews coming back to that area. Judea is going to overflow. But then when the idol is set up, when the abomination of desolation is set up, you that are in Judea flee out and don't even look back. That's the context. Make more sense? Absolutely. Good. I like absolutely. I have never answered a question for, for Micah where you said absolutely. That's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. Anything else? We're good? All right. Say goodbye to the digital congregation. Goodbye. Bye.
Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And join us next time as we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.